Previously on White Lies. We'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. The Cubans were viewed as not really having any rights. If there's a racial element to this suspicion and stereotype, absolutely, without question. Many of them were black, young men, unskilled. These were considered the most difficult people to find sponsors for. The thing I get is nobody cares. They were sent here with a label. And you know what we did? We accepted the label. On Sunday, May 18th, 1980, less than two weeks after President Jimmy Carter welcomed the Cubans with an open heart and open arms, a man named Gennaro Siroa Gonzalez arrived in Key West from the port of Mariel. By all accounts, Siroa Gonzalez was a quiet and reserved man. He was 45 years old. He'd once studied medicine in Cuba. He was on the shorter side, thin, and he was Afro-Cuban with very dark skin. His hair was close-cropped, slightly receding, and he had a warm and broad smile. Soroa Gonzalez had the names of some relatives he believed lived in Florida, but he didn't know how to contact them. And so, after a brief interview in Key West, with no family members there waiting to pick him up, he boarded a government airplane with around 300 other Cuban refugees to make the flight all the way up to Fort Indiantown Gap in Pennsylvania. There, the government had set up a processing center, similar to the one at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas where the refugees could be connected with social services, could try and locate family members, or could wait for a sponsor. Just a few days after Soroa Gonzalez arrived in Fort Indiantown Gap, he was ushered into an interview room with an immigration inspector. The interview was conducted in English, but Soroa Gonzalez spoke only Spanish. So an interpreter laid the questions and answers. The inspector asked about his life in Cuba and his reasons for coming on the boat lift asked if he'd ever been convicted of any crimes or if he'd spent time in a Cuban prison. And at the end, Soroa Gonzalez was presented with a transcript of the interview. It was in English, which he couldn't read, but he signed it anyway. Then he went back to the barracks to wait. Four days later, he was taken from the barracks to another government airplane, this one bound for the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Soro Gonzalez was confused, but he was offered little in the way of explanation. When he arrived in Atlanta on May 28th, there were already 300 other Mariel Cubans being detained there. After initial interviews with immigration officials at processing centers or even at the dock at Key West, they'd been sent there to await further hearings from an immigration judge. All of them were suspected of having serious criminal backgrounds. And now they were sitting in the basement of the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Soroa Gonzalez was there in the prison for six weeks before he was given an exclusion hearing. Remember, legally he was not here in the first place. He was out at sea, asking to come in. But the government was in a difficult spot. If they denied Soroa Gonzalez and others like him entry into the country, what could they do with them? A non-citizen from almost any other nation would simply be sent back to their home country. But lacking diplomatic relations with Cuba, the U.S. couldn't just send back those they found undesirable. They'd have to find something else to do with them. At the exclusion hearing, Soroa Gonzalez finally learned why he was in Atlanta in the first place. That statement he'd signed back at Fort Indiantown Gap, it said that Soroa Gonzalez had spent time in a Cuban jail for drug trafficking. But that wasn't true. Something had gone horribly wrong, maybe a botched translation. Soroa Gonzalez pleaded with the immigration judge, and the judge believed him. 
He looked at what little record there was and made the determination that Soroa Gonzalez was innocent of crimes in Cuba. But here's the thing. There was nothing the judge could do. Like nearly every other Cuban who came during the Mariel boatlift, Soroa Gonzalez had arrived in the country without formal entry papers. And for the INS, lacking entry papers was enough to warrant a final order for exclusion. So Soroa Gonzalez was sent back to the prison's basement to wait. We started the story by telling you about the men on the roof of the prison in Talladega, Alabama in 1991. How some had been held for over a decade with no concrete hope of release. That because of the entry fiction, that legal concept that these men weren't even in the country at all and therefore had no constitutional rights, that because of that our government could deny them due process and lock them up without a charge, with no end in sight. Sometimes working on the story, with all of its complicated moving parts, all of its intrigue, we just look at each other and say, it's the indefinite detention, stupid. That's the heart of it. That's the crux. And the story of this policy of indefinite detention, it starts with Soroa Gonzalez, detained for a mistake at the Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. From NPR, this is White Lies. I'm Chip Brantley. And I'm Andrew Beck Grace. This message comes from NPR sponsor Liquid IV, the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being. Made with premium ingredients, you can use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on long flights. Made with premium ingredients and essential vitamins. You can find Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WHITELIES at checkout. The federal prison system was created by an act of Congress in 1891, an act that called for three U.S. prisons to be built, one in Leavenworth, Kansas, one on McNeil Island in Washington State, and one in Atlanta, Georgia. The Atlanta pen is an enormous, imposing Victorian-era structure circled by a huge prison wall. When it was completed, the wall was said to be the largest concrete and steel-reinforced structure in the world. The east and west wings were built with prison labor, out of granite cut from nearby Stone Mountain. For most of the 20th century, the Atlanta pen was the largest prison in the entire federal system. The first six inmates arrived at the end of January 1902, with charges of counterfeiting, moonshining, and robbing a post office. At one point or another, it has housed Whitey Bulger, John Gotti, and even Al Capone. Scarface himself. And in 1920, the American socialist Eugene Debs actually ran his campaign for the presidency from his cell in Atlanta. But by 1980, the prison was falling apart. It was overcrowded and extraordinarily violent. After a wave of inmate murders in the late 70s, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran an article with the headline, Violent Death is Part of Life for 2200 Inmates. A federal study found that the prison was just too broken to fix and recommended that the Bureau of Prisons shut it down. In preparation for its closing, most of the inmates had been moved to other maximum security prisons in the federal system, 
But all those empty cells turned out to be the perfect place for another federal agency, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, to start detaining the Mariel Cubans. My office was about a mile from the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. And a phone call came in from some guy at INS. They had like an, a set up an INS office up there. And they needed lawyers to come and represent the Cubans in their exclusion hearings. In 1980, when she got the call from the INS officer at the pen, Deborah Abel was five years out of law school working as a staff attorney at the Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Legal aid lawyers provide civil legal services for people who couldn't otherwise afford it. And during her time at Legal Aid, Abel had worked on all manner of cases, but nothing in the way of immigration law. So she had no idea when an exclusion hearing even was. So I said, of course, sure, we'll be right over. (laughs) Abel had never been inside the Atlanta pen, and she didn't want to go alone this first time. So she asked another young lawyer in the office to go with her. So we parked our car in the lot, walked up the stairs, which are pretty imposing, saw the rifle guards up top, and went in the front door. They went through security, put their bags in lockers, and were then ushered in to see the warden and deputy warden. We were basically told, what in the world are you doing here? You're two young women. You know, you don't have any business being here. This is not a setting for you. You don't know how dangerous these men are here. These people are animals. Uh, this is absolutely, it's, it's a hellhole. You know, I don't care who invited you to come. You really should leave. The intimidation worked. Abel and the other lawyer got their bags from the lockers, walked out the front door and down the stairs, and back to the car in the parking lot. And we kind of just looked at each other after a while, and we said... <laughs> What are we doing? <laughs> why why did we just leave? You know, we're better than that. And hey, we're legal aid, you know. <laughs> and we got an invitation to help people. So So they took a breath, marched back up the stairs, put their stuff back in the lockers, and told the wardens that by God someone from INS had asked them to come to the prison and that they intended to meet with them. They were escorted through the sally port and past the main level of the prison with all the cell blocks until they reached an elevator which they took to the INS office on the third floor. And there we were greeted by some person who was heading up the INS office there. And he told us what they really needed was lawyers to represent Cubans. You know, they're not going to win. So you're kind of like window dressing. But they, they need a lawyer. Abel started meeting one-on-one with the Cuban detainees to figure out how legal aid could help. By this point, there were already hundreds of detainees being held in Atlanta. So right away, she started recruiting other lawyers to pitch in. I got a call from a lawyer at one of the legal aid offices, and um, they said, what's an exclusion hearing, basically? Myron Kramer was one of those lawyers Deborah Abel recruited to pitch in. Kramer had just started an immigration law practice in Atlanta the year before, but had not yet done an exclusion hearing which, again, is a hearing before an immigration judge who determines if someone is admissible into the country. If so, they're paroled in. If not, then they're excluded. And in the eyes of the law, they're not actually inside the country at all. We started doing individual exclusion hearings. And exclusion was the government would charge you with having one of, at the time, I think 33 grounds that the statute lays out for inadmissibility into the United States. And that could have been criminal 
could have been public charge. It could have been being a communist. It could have been not having a visa. So Abel and Kramer began representing the detainees at their exclusion hearings. It was a slow, frustrating process. At the time, there were no immigration judges in Atlanta. So the detainees were at the mercy of judges from elsewhere in the country, who would cycle through for a couple of days of hearings and then go back home. More and more detainees were arriving every week, and Abel and Kramer scrambled to keep up. The detainees all had different stories and circumstances they had to consider when preparing for a hearing. The one constant was that none of the men were prevailing in their exclusion hearings. Even those, like Gennaro Soroa Gonzalez, whose only violation was not having proper entry papers. So what happened in these cases was everybody was charged with not having a visa because nobody had a visa. And so we ended up losing them all. And at some point we got together and said, there's a, an issue here, which is we can't win, even if we win. Remember, practically none of the 125,000 Mariel Cubans had entry papers. But tens of thousands of them, more than 90% of the total boatlift population, had already been released into the country by this point, because they had family members or a sponsor to vouch for them. Still, not having entry papers was grounds for inadmissibility. So when it came to the men being detained at the Atlanta pen, what the INS officer had told Deborah Abel during their first meeting turned out to be true. She and Kramer and the other lawyers were window dressing. We, we just came to a decision that this was a waste of our time. There was just no point in going on because we were accomplishing nothing. Then we just put our heads together and thought, well, what else can we do? What they did was dial up one of the oldest plays in the book. They filed a petition for habeas corpus. You've heard the term habeas corpus before, but maybe you've forgotten exactly what it means. Literally, in Latin, it means that you have the body. Or, as it's more commonly translated, show me the body. It's a legal procedure that allows someone being detained to come before a judge to force the state to justify their detention. You file a habeas corpus asking the judge to bring the body of the person who's detained to the courthouse. So it's like a way to get your foot in the door. It's just the vehicle of getting the case before the court. Habeas is a cornerstone of English common law that goes back almost a thousand years, predating even the Magna Carta. It's called the Great Writ. It was officially enacted into English law in the 17th century, and then written into Article I of the U.S. Constitution a hundred years later. And because the Mariel Cubans being detained at the Atlanta pen in 1980 were in federal custody, Deborah Abel would need to file a petition in federal court. And for that first habeas filing, she cast around for a ringer, for the most sympathetic plaintiff detained in Atlanta. And she landed on Gennaro Soroa Gonzalez. Soroa was such a good person, was so pure. I mean, as the driven snow, like almost like a goody two-shoes sitting in this horrible place. We could not get a better first plaintiff than him. The first hearing for the case was scheduled in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia on March 30, 1981. By that point, Soroa Gonzalez had been detained at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta for 306 days. All because, like practically everyone else who came over from Mariel, he lacked entry papers. Today, a computer program randomly assigns a district judge to every federal case. But in those days, they used to spin a big wheel to see who would hear the case. And when they spun the wheel for Soroa Gonzalez v. Civiletti, as the case came to be known, it landed on the name of Judge Marvin Schub. 
After a long career as a lawyer in Atlanta, Judge Shub had been nominated by President Carter in June 1979 and confirmed by the Senate a month later. So he was relatively new to the bench. But right away, he began to develop a reputation as the embodiment of judicial independence. Someone who took seriously his role as a so-called Article III judge, a judge with a lifetime appointment who could make decisions about what was fair and lawful without consideration of partisan politics and public opinion. And he definitely looked and sounded the part. Tall, handsome, regal silver hair, and a slow, deep Savannah accent. What happened, I was uh, at an outpost uh, in Germany. Uh, I was in Patton's Third Army. I was in the infantry. This was in 1943. Three or 44, I forgot the year. That's from an interview Judge Shub did in the mid-90s. The story he's starting to tell there, it's a story that everyone we've talked to who knew Judge Shub told us about him. And that's because it's a story he seems to have often told about himself. We've debated whether we should tell you this story, because while we have no reason to believe it's not true, it's not something we can fact check. And repeating it here, now, at this point in the story, I don't know, maybe it risks tilting into hagiography, which is not something we want to do. And we never got to talk with him about it, since he died back in 2017 at the age of 94. Anyway, the story goes, it's World War II, and Judge Shub was by himself in a crater behind enemy lines somewhere on the Western Front. He's 20 years old, an infantryman in Patton's Third Army. There was a lot of shooting and shelling going on in the near distance. It was foggy and getting dark, and suddenly, out of the fog, walked five German soldiers with their hands up. I made them come down into the crater where I was, but I didn't know what to do with them. Wasn't any place to send them. And a lieutenant came by uh, who was not in my company, and he said, uh, What are you going to do with those prisoners? And I said, Lieutenant, I don't know what to do with them. Uh, I don't have any place to send them. So he made them all lie down, and they were crying and begging in German. And, and he just took his weapon, he sprayed them and killed them all. And uh, he turned to me and said, That takes care of your problem. And he walked away. And then it was getting dark. And as I lay there that night uh, with those bodies, you know, I was profoundly affected by it. He was so horrified by, by that incident, it never left him. And that's really what guided him as a judge. Michael Robinson was a longtime law clerk for Judge Shub. His first stint was back in the early 1980s when all this Cuban detainee stuff was going on. Obviously, he would follow the law, but... The way he interpreted the law was always informed by this overarching desire to do the right thing. If you hear that and you think, well, yeah, he's a federal judge. Of course he wants to do the right thing. I'd ask you to consider the difference between following the law and interpreting the law. In the case of Soroa Gonzalez, for example, the legal precedent was Ignaz Mize, that McCarthy-era Supreme Court decision that said the detention of an excludable non-citizen was constitutional. Following the law established by Mize was actually pretty straightforward. If a non-citizen was deemed excludable, that person had no rights, because legally, that person was not inside the country. Even if, like Mize, like Soroa Gonzalez, that person's body was inside the country. From our perspective or in my client's perspective, it was well-settled law that these people were not in the United States. In the early 80s, Doug Roberto was an assistant U.S. attorney in Atlanta. And after Deborah Abel filed the Soroa Gonzalez habeas corpus petition, Roberto was assigned the case. He would represent the U.S. government in Judge Shub's court. And, as you can hear, his defense was all about Mazay. The 
Legal fiction was they were standing at the border, knocking on the door, asking for admission. Therefore, they had no constitutional rights at all. They were, you know, basically outside the United States. And so um, my defense was they don't get habeas corpus. You can't hear the case. You have no authority on the case. Judge, you know, I'm sorry, but you can't do anything. Judge Shub just thought that was ridiculous. That's Michael Robinson again, who clerked for Judge Shub. He was outraged by the treatment that these individuals were receiving. He felt that that due process should be available to these detainees, that this theory of being stopped at the border was just not the case. These, these people had not been stopped at the border. They were allowed into the country, and once they were in the country, then they had every right that any other person in the country has. We found the transcript for the Soroa Gonzalez hearing in the branch of the National Archives in Atlanta. And in it, you can see that Judge Shub starts off pretty receptive to the government's claim that it's operating in good faith. But as he hears more about the circumstances of the Cubans' detention, his questions suggest he's growing increasingly offended by the government's stance. At one point, Judge Shub asked Abel, is your client locked in a cell or are the cell doors kept open? Yes, he's locked in, she says. The judge says, no, 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 I, I don't mean the outside prison doors. I mean the individual cell doors. Yes, Your Honor, he's locked in an individual cell, just like he's a prisoner. He's not free to mingle and go around, because the prison has extensive grounds there. And I think they used to have exercise areas, tennis courts, a swimming pool. No, Your Honor, she says. He has not gone swimming. He's locked up, languishing. At a second hearing held in early June 1981, at which point Soroa Gonzalez had been detained for more than a year, Judge Shub asked the assistant U.S. attorney, Doug Roberto, how long does a man have to stay in prison while the federal government decides what they're going to do? Indefinitely? Let's say this man had been in prison for five years. Would you be standing here before me taking the same position that you are taking today? Roberto basically says, look, the Mazay decision gives the government the authority to detain this man indefinitely. And if that's what the government decides to do, then yes, I would be standing here in five years taking the same position. Soon after, Judge Shub ended the hearing with his ruling. Quote, The court concludes that the further detention of Gennaro Soroa Gonzalez is arbitrary. It is neither fair, reasonable, nor humane. Can this court do anything about it? This court concludes that it can. I order him released on parole by noon tomorrow, June 5, 1981. Simply following the Mazay precedent seemed to Judge Shub incompatible with doing the right thing. The first person released was a former medical student, and his name was Soror Gonzalez. Here's Judge Shub talking about the case in the mid-90s. I had a separate hearing for him, and he told me that when he came to this country, he expected to find justice, but he had not found justice. And I said, you'll get justice in this court. And I ordered his release. His attorney, who was a young woman named Deborah Abel, uh, took the order releasing him out to Atlanta Penitentiary. It was on a Friday afternoon. And I walked in and, you know, like, we're here to get Soroa Gonzalez out. I waited and waited and waited, and they were just ditzing around. They did not want to release this guy. 
So I called Judge Shub's office. Uh, she called me from the Atlanta Penitentiary and said, Judge, they will not release Mr. Soror Gonzalez. I said, I can't get him out. So I called the prison and I spoke to uh, the lieutenant who was in command and asked him if he had the order and he said he did. And I said, well, you have an order to release Mr. Soror Gonzalez. I expect him released. He said, well, I have orders from Washington not to release anybody, no matter what the judge says. I could hear him through the phone, and Judge Shub said, Sir, I, can you tell me what your name is? All right, and how do you spell your last name? And the guy said, what do you need to know the spelling of my name for? He said, well, I just want to make sure that when I issued the warrant for your arrest um, for not following that order, I spell it right. I said, well, I'm going to send the U.S. Marshals out there in about 10 minutes, and they're going to pick up Mr. Cyril Gonzalez, and they're going to pick you up and you're going to spend the weekend in the Douglas County Jail, and then you're going to be brought before me for contempt of court Monday. He said, okay, I'll release him. And finally, 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 he and I walked out the door. When Deborah Abel finally walked out with her client, Soroa Gonzalez, he'd been detained for 379 days, and his release was a source of hope to the rest of the detainees in Atlanta. At the time, the cell blocks had windows that opened, and... Word spreads pretty quickly in a prison, and um, everybody seemed to know that I was walking out with Soroa Gonzalez. And <laughs> so there were all these Cubans up there waving like pillowcases or just waving out. Um, and they were screaming, Santa Deborah! <laughs> <laughs> Santa Deborah. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, this is like, it's a moment like no other in my life. And then we got to where the sponsors were, and uh, I wished him the best and said goodbye. And I don't think I ever saw him after that, but I knew he was safe and good. And that's what it took to get the first one released. The couple who sponsored Soroa Gonzalez still lives in Atlanta, and their son, who was in high school at the time, remembers when Soroa Gonzalez came home from the pen. He recalls this kind and polite man who lived with him for a few months. Then Soroa Gonzalez moved out on his own. He wound up staying in Atlanta and lived a quiet life in a small four-unit apartment building southwest of downtown until his death in 2006 at the age of 70. Talking to you opened a, a door that had been shut for a long, long time, and some, a lot of memories have flowed in, but they're not all there, you know? They're fractured. That's Alba Males. She was working as an interpreter for the INS inside the Atlanta pen. She remembers the day Gennaro Soroa Gonzalez was released. Oh, yes, I remember the joy. Oh, that was like a carnival. It was like, you know, Christmas, Easter, Carnival, all rolled into one. And there was more to celebrate in the weeks after Soroa Gonzalez's release. Judge Shub ordered the DOJ to release three more detainees whose habeas petitions had come before him. And then, in late August, he made a broader ruling to order the release of every detainee in Atlanta who was being held solely because he lacked entry papers. That applied to 381 detainees. 
When the first group of them was released, the cheers from the men inside the prison were so loud that one of the sponsors waiting outside the prison thought there was a riot going on inside. People would cry and the noise was incredible and, you know, they, it's like you read about children who are waiting to be adopted and the prospective parents come and take one and you're left behind. So there was joy, but there was this sadness and despair. By this point, there were more than 1,500 Mariel Cubans being detained at the Atlanta pen, men whom the United States government could not repatriate to Cuba and would not release into American society. A New York Times article examined who was actually being held at the prison. A small number were said to have committed serious crimes in Cuba, 11 alleged homicides among them. But the vast majority of the alleged crimes were theft, and almost all of those involved theft of food or clothing. The article also lists a smattering of other alleged crimes in Cuba, quote, killing a cow without government permission, being a troublemaker, and using a father's identification card to attend a carnival. In his order releasing the 381 who only lacked entry papers, Judge Shub also ruled that the DOJ couldn't continue to arbitrarily detain people. It had to come up with some plan to review the status of the remaining detainees and to provide cause for their continued detention. But all this was taking time. And even as some of the detainees were getting released by the DOJ, more and more were being transferred in every week. They were usually brought late at night. There were a lot of movements and they were late at night. Of course, we weren't there, but, you know, people talk. Some of the new arrivals were sent to Atlanta after failed sponsorships. Some had committed relatively minor crimes, drug possession, drunk driving, theft. And because of that, they'd had their immigration parole revoked. And some had never found sponsors at all but instead languished in the resettlement camp at Fort Chaffee until President Reagan signed an executive order in late January 1982 that had transferred custody of them to the Department of Justice and sent them to the federal prison in Atlanta. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. Reagan had run for president on this bedrock view of American exceptionalism. And when you look back at his rhetoric from this time, I've got to be honest, it's incredibly hopeful and optimistic, like America's best days lay ahead. But one of Reagan's talents as a politician was to project optimism and hope while pursuing policies that were austere and even punitive. He wanted to radically cut the budget of the federal government while lowering taxes and increasing defense spending. And to do so, he planned to come after welfare and other social service programs. He touted states' rights throughout the campaign, a clear dog whistle to Southern whites, and in the first months of his administration, he signaled a much more severe approach to crime. Many of you have written to me how afraid you are to walk the streets alone at night. We must make America safe again, especially for women and elderly who face so many moments of fear. This is from a radio address President Reagan gave in his first term on the subject of violent crime and criminal justice reform. I hope we can count on your support in our war on crime and our efforts to protect the innocent and put the professional criminals in jail where they belong. The Republican Party had been using this tough-on-crime rhetoric since Barry Goldwater's campaign for president in 1964, a campaign Reagan had enthusiastically supported. In fact, the Goldwater campaign was Reagan's first significant entry into politics. During the campaign, Goldwater had tied the rise in crime to the expansion of the welfare state and suggested that urban crime was a result of the civil rights movement. Then, when Richard Nixon was elected, Nixon had famously carried this rhetoric on with the creation of the so-called War on Drugs. 
And as Reagan put together his cabinet, he appointed William French Smith to be his attorney general. Smith could trace his roots back to the Mayflower. He'd never held a government position, but he'd been a longtime personal attorney and advisor to Reagan. And in the early months of the new administration, Smith unveiled one of the signature initiatives of the Reagan Justice Department. Attorney General William French Smith said today that violent crime had become an urgent, shocking national problem and announced formation of a special task force to recommend federal action. It wasn't white-collar crime, tax cheats or fraud or embezzlement or corporate malfeasance they were going after. Here's Attorney General Smith. I'm, I'm saying that we are placing an emphasis on violent crime, and I think that the public demands that. The public is more concerned with their personal safety than they are with having to pay an an extra five cents or ten cents, which may result from white-collar crime. The public is more concerned, the attorney general says. And that might be because the specter of violent crime was everywhere in the early 80s. It led newscasts and front pages. It was a sensation for the press. And the new administration capitalized on this sensation. But if you look back at the crime statistics from this era, they reveal a more complicated picture. The overall level of criminal activity remained relatively stable during the 1980s. But what did have a shocking rise is just how much we talked about it. One sociologist remarked, one cannot be mugged by a crime wave, but one can be scared. So police forces swelled, arrests went up, and Reagan's Department of Justice made sure that sentencing guidelines were made harsher. The result? During the Reagan era, the Universal Crime Index increased by 3%. But the prison population? It increased by 181%. The Department of Justice housed the INS, and so it was also in charge of the enforcement of the nation's immigration laws. And soon after the push to address violent crime, Attorney General Smith began advocating for a new approach to immigration as well. In October of 1981, just four months after Judge Shue released Soroa Gonzalez, Smith appeared on Firing Line, a show hosted by the conservative commentator William F. Buckley, to talk about American immigration policy. Well, the numbers are really uh, quite staggering. The, the total immigration last year, legal and illegal, was the highest it has been in any year in our history. Even when there were no uh, limitations? Even when there were no limitations, and even during the period uh, around the turn of the century when we had our great influx of uh, immigration, primarily from European countries. Okay, a quick fact check. While it's true that 1980 had been an extraordinary year for migration to the U.S., it's simply not true to say it was the highest total year for immigration in our history. But let's set aside the questionable numbers, because from a rhetorical standpoint, Attorney General Smith is setting something up here. Uh, We have effectively lost control of our borders, and uh, the public now thinks, uh, and very strongly, that uh, something has to be done about this problem. The event which made immigration suddenly an important issue in the way it hadn't been in the public consciousness was the Mariel Boatlift, the uh, Cuban incursion about 125,000 people. Do you see what he's doing here? You can see something happening in real time. Just like they had inflated the fears of the crime wave, the Reagan administration is playing up the public perception that immigration is out of control. And how are they doing it? By using the Mario boat lift. It's that familiar battle again. The battle of theater over history. And William French Smith was right. Not to call the boatlift an incursion, but he's right about how Marielle had drawn the public's attention to the issue of immigration. 
Remember, the Bowlift had started as a freedom flotilla, a humanitarian effort to rescue refugees from a communist dictatorship. But soon, the optics shifted. The sheer scale, the feeling that it was uncontrolled. And then there were the Mario Cubans themselves, many of them working class, dark-skinned, single young men. A national 1982 Gallup survey showed that the Mario Cubans were the second least desirable neighbors, just slightly behind members of a religious cult. They weren't seen as refugees, yearning to breathe free. They had been made criminal aliens by the stories that got told about them. In all of this, the administration's linking of immigration with crime, the alarmist language about losing control of our borders, was building toward a new immigration policy. In the early 80s, Attorney General Smith led a task force on immigration, and one of its most significant recommendations had to do with the detention of non-citizens. Upending decades of American immigration procedure, the Reagan administration adopted a new policy of, quote, detaining illegal aliens upon arrival. Those people are illegally in this country. They have no right to be here, and we have a right to hold them for as long as we have to to protect the safety of the American people. You recognize that voice? It's the Associate Attorney General, the third highest-ranking member of the Department of Justice, Rudolph Giuliani. Giuliani had been co-chair of that immigration task force that had endorsed the new policy of detaining non-citizens. This interview is from an episode of the CBS program 60 Minutes about the Mario Cubans detained in Atlanta. While Judge Shub's orders had released some of the men, more had come in their place. And by this point, some of these men had been in Atlanta for nearly three years without any sense of if or when they might ever get out. Giuliani was the DOJ point person on the Marial detainees. And as such, he was tasked with making the argument to Mike Wallace that the Cubans being held there had essentially no rights. And what you're saying is it's up to the State Department to send them back if they can. And until they do, anyone that presents a danger to an American citizen should remain confined and we will, we will fight with any judge and take it to any court to keep it that way. When Giuliani says any judge, he's really just talking about one judge, Judge Marvin Shub. Here's Judge Shub talking in that same 60 Minutes episode. Well, I don't think any feeling person wants to see human beings incarcerated without any charges, without any crimes having been committed, uh, for no reason other than the fact that they don't have some little piece of paper that the government says they should have after they've been invited over to this country by the President of the United States. It just goes against the grain of all sense of fair play that we've got in this country. By the time Judge Shub gave this interview, he had presided over two other major cases dealing with the Cuban refugees. And unlike Soroa Gonzalez, these two had been class actions, meaning that each case represented hundreds of detainees. In these rulings, he came up with a clever argument. Basically, he said, look at the Constitution. Right there in the Fifth Amendment. You know the Fifth Amendment. We usually think about it when someone invokes the right not to testify against themselves. It also prohibits double jeopardy. But it begins by saying that, except in rare circumstances, you can't be held to answer for a crime without a presentment or indictment from a grand jury. Basically, you can't be held without a charge. And, Judge Hsu points out, look at exactly what the amendment says. It begins by saying, quote, no person shall be held to answer, end quote. It doesn't say no citizen. It says no person. And so, he argues, quote, all persons are entitled to their liberty absent some legally sufficient reason for detaining them, end quote. 
But almost every time Judge Shub ruled against the federal government, he was appealed by the DOJ to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, also based in Atlanta. And their response? These people never entered the country. They have been asking to enter, and we have said no. And just like Ignatz Mazet, sitting on Ellis Island, the federal government has no responsibility to give them their liberty. At one hearing, a judge on the 11th Circuit tells the attorneys for the Cuban detainees, the federal government has the right to hold these people in prison until they die. Until they die? Well, there wasn't anything to do in the prison graveyard unless somebody died. And then my job would be to dig a grave by hand. And then I would also supervise the burial. That's next time on White Lies. our next episode now before everyone else sign up for embedded plus at plus.npr.org embedded or find the embedded channel on apple it's a great way to support our work and you'll get to listen to the entire season sponsor free that's plus.npr.org embedded white lies is reported written and produced by us and connor town o'neill liana simstrom is our supervising producer annie yetzi is our associate producer Robert Little edits the show with help from Bruce Oster, Keith Woods, Christopher Turpin, and Kamala Kelker. Our incredible score is composed and performed by Jeff T. Bird. Emily Bogle is senior visual editor. Barbara Van Workham is our fact checker. We've had research help from Susie Cummings, Ida Purasad, and Katie Dogger from NPR's research, archives, and data strategy team. Our audio engineer is Maggie Luthar. Huge thanks to Radiohead for the use of their song, The National Anthem courtesy of XL Recordings and Warner Chapel Music. Archival tape in this episode comes from C-SPAN, the Cuban Heritage Collection at the University of Miami Libraries, the Estela and Ernesto Bravo Film and Video Collection at New York University, the PBS NewsHour Collection and the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, NBC, CBS, the Ronald Reagan Library and Museum, and the Hoover Institution Library and Archives. Special thanks to Maureen Hill and Nathan Jordan at the National Archives in Atlanta. Also to Michael Sullivan, Jorge Antona, Patricia Bravo, Walter Lippmann, Adrian Hunter, Michael Konsewicz and the Special Collections Department at NYU's Tammament Library, and to public historian Christina Scholl for her recent book, Detention Empire. We're grateful for the work of Micah Ratner and NPR's legal team, and Tony Cavan, NPR's Standards and Practices Editor. Our project manager is Margaret Price. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit. And Anya Grunman is NPR's Senior Vice President for Programming and Audience Development. 